everyone. Welcome to the Anti-Genocide Coffee Break, a multinational podcast. I am your host, Elisa von jürgen Forgi, and I am here again with my co-host, Irene Victoria Massimino. Our technical producer is Rafi Zarzatian. You can find us at iraqproject.org and on Patreon, Spotify, and iTunes. We're back after quite a break, um, and we'll talk a little bit today about, about why we've been absent for so long from our podcasts. Uh, but first, I want to say hello to Irene. Hi, Irene. Hello, Elisa. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. Very, very excited to finally be back in our podcast. Me too. Some I've things missed have it. changed. Some yeah. things have changed, but some others, no. We still have Rafi as our executive producer, so we thank Rafi for mm -hmm. all of his work. But some things have changed. Do you want to talk about that a yeah, little bit? Yeah, you go ahead. Go ahead, Irene. Go ahead. Well, I'll jump we in. have this. Yes, that's wonderful. We have this amazing news that the IPG has become now a formal NGO, has acquired NGO status in the United States. So we are getting more more formal, I would say. Yeah. Not that our work wasn't formal at all. No, 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 I don't mean that. But we do have a more formal context in order to, to, to do many things, to do part of our work, to present ourselves to society, to collaborate with other NGOs, um, to work abroad as well, to have, uh, well, we have also an exciting group of people helping us that Elisa will probably talk about that. And we've done so much work uh, with the IPG that we're very excited. So we've sort of left our podcast a little bit outside, but we're back. We're back. Yes. And we're back to stay. <laughs> <laughs> we are back to stay. We missed podcasting. Um, it's it's really fun to talk about um, new you know news events in uh, in in genocide prevention and to just stay up to date on and share ideas about um, the news going on in the world. And so we'll also be back with guest speakers, right, with interviews and that sort of thing. Today, we are just sort of doing a podcast uh, between me and Irena, and we're going to be talking about um, a new legal brief written by the government of Armenia and submitted to the ICJ, the International Court of Justice. We'll be talking about a statement that we've issued, that the IPG has issued on Texas's abortion, anti-abortion law, SB8. And we'll be talking about the very recent news of the poor treatment um, of Haitian refugees and asylum seekers at the U.S. southern border. So those are the three topics today, but we did want to start with a little overview of what's been going on. And as Irena said, yes. we're now an NGO, so that's wonderful. Mm -hmm. We're a recognized charity in the state of Pennsylvania, um, and we're working on getting our official 501c3 status for those of you who are in the United States, which means that all donations to us will be tax deductible. Uh, but that status is not quite, it hasn't quite come through yet. Um, but we're expecting step it to. By step. step by step. Step by step. We're expecting step. it in step the next step. six months or so. And we have these great interns. Some of them are from, I'm teaching at Keene State College, so I'm up here in Keene, New Hampshire. Uh, and there's a wonderful, the only uh, major in Holocaust and Genocide Studies is here 
at this college. It's fabulous. I have great colleagues and really great students. And so um, yeah, they started to intern with us at the beginning of the summer. And this is one of the reasons that we haven't been doing our podcast is they um, gave us the capacity to begin other projects as well. And so we've been working exactly. very hard on launching these other projects, which include uh, micro courses uh, that we put out on um, social media on various things. The first micro course we did in August was on the Yazidi genocide by ISIS, putting mm -hmm. in into some political and historical context. Context, yeah. And we're now um, just about to finish up a, a micro course on Christian genocides in the Middle East, particularly in Iraq and under ISIS. And we're working on a micro course on Afghanistan, so on something yes. very, very relevant to the We have so day. many projects, Elisa. Yeah, very we do. Many. We Yes, and I, I love to, you know, for our listeners, I'm just going to say summer, the summer Elisa mentioned mm. is the summer in the Northern Hemisphere, right? Oh, so, so sorry, I always be, forget. No, that's okay. I'm yeah. just going to clarify that that would be um, winter for the sun, Southern Hemisphere. So that's quite recent. A few yeah. few months ago, we had this, we, we started working with this wonderful group of interns. We also have graduate students as interns from yeah. NYU and um, another George, George Mason, right? Yeah, the, Car uh, the Carter Center at George Mason Carter University. Center. So these are great. Yeah, to have these One. graduate students who are focusing on not just genocide, but also conflict resolution, politics, global politics wonderful. is wonderful. Um, and they're, they're, they're very knowledgeable. They're very committed as well. Right. And they very much enjoy as well. They've, they've told us they enjoy very much working with us and, and being part of all these projects. And actually, if you go into our website, www.iraqproject.org, you can see many of these projects already yeah. uploaded, like the mm -hmm. statements, the set of mm -hmm. statements. We had Teresa helping us. She's mm -hmm. one of the Teresa Merrick, who's now at, in, exactly. uh, in a, an MA student in us. politics at NYU, New York University. Yeah. Hopefully she'll join us for one podcast, maybe. Yeah, we're hoping. Uh, we are and, hoping. Uh, Yes, she's wonderful at, at writing, so she's helped us a lot with those statements as well. And and anyway, so we have many projects ahead mm -hmm. of us, webinars that or, or courses, online uh, video courses that we'll be putting up. So I hope you all stay tuned yeah. to see our future, our future work being published in our website and, and in our different social media as well. Yeah, exactly. And if you have ideas, send them our way. Or if you want to collaborate, let us know. Um, you can contact us at info at iraqproject.org, um, which is also, that's an email that's also on our website. So we're pretty easy to find. Um, and we're always looking for collaborations. That's sort of, that's how we work. That's one of the principles of our work is, is, is that we'll work with anybody who's interested in genocide prevention. Um, and that kind of, you know, group wisdom, I think, is, Certainly. is, is very meaningful and very necessary to to the mission, to our mission of creating a new global language in genocide prevention that's shared, a shared language across mm -hmm. the grassroots. So, yeah, yes. so it's wonderful. And, well, here, and we're excited to be joining you today. Um, it's very sunny here in Keene. We had huge rains in the morning and 
our connectivity oh. our internet connectivity wasn't great so i'm happy that it's sunny now because the internet seems to be better at those times so hopefully we'll have <laughs> a good, good quality recording <laughs> yeah, it looks good. like it's sunny where you are too yes, you know? it's sunny here too it's nice because spring started a couple of days ago here in argentina well 21st september so it's the weather is you know it's becoming nice and flowers are blooming oh, and trees that. as well are becoming yeah. greener it's a nice it's a nice season although i do like autumn too mm, despite mm. everything sort of falling and and somehow shrinking you know yeah. like nature but i still like it a lot so yeah but um spring usually the weather is nicer and i, I like the the grass greener <laughs> <laughs> yes it makes a difference winter yes, is hard it isn't it yeah it makes a difference so how is la plata uh, i mean how is the climate in spring is it is it um dry or no it's no. humid it's we're humid. yeah it's quite mm. humid because we're very close to the the river yeah. there's a huge river called la plata river it's mm. one of the widest rivers in the world i wow. usually tell people yes yes I didn't uh, know you that. can it's so wide people sometimes when they stand on the shore you cannot see the other side You're which kidding. is uruguay on the other side we have uruguay really? and so they cannot see it and they wow. think it's a sea and no, yeah. it's it's uh, yeah, it's the delta of the La Plata River, which is so wide. Um, so it's very humid. Mm. We have a lot of humidity. That I don't like. No, I have of to course say, not. me neither. I I don't like humidity, and it's probably the most humid season. But since the temperature is not that high, it can yeah. you know we have a big gap. You know, cold yeah. in the morning, colder in the morning, and then warmer during the day, and then colder in the That's evening. That's nice. That's very nice. Mm -hmm. Instead, the summer is humid, but hot during the whole day. And that's a combination I don't like particularly. But No, it's so, so much easier to be in dry heat. Yeah. I really prefer desert climates, yeah. dry climates, because the heat there, it can be very hot. But since it's dry, your body's able to manage the heat better. Absolutely. It's really much healthier. I think I don't know if it has to do with I'm not an expert but no. if, if it has to do with like the pressure the the, the air pressure we call it I don't I don't yeah, know in don't English know. exactly but yeah. I think when it's humid the pressure is very low and yeah. and it feels huh. heavy on the body huh. the heat it and the does humidity. feel heavy that is really true it's difficult to move sometimes yeah. you know but yeah. anyway it's I'm very now, humid it's humid where I am too which is weird yeah. I'm in Keene New Hampshire which is up in New England, which isn't known, mm -hmm. I thought, for being humid, right? And it's known for being very cool in the days, and then it warms up during, I mean, cool in the mornings, and then it warms up during the day, and it gets cool again at night. Because, But because Keene is so humid, that, that temperature fluctuation, sometimes you can't feel it that much, since it's yeah. still humid when it's cool at nighttime. And I've been trying to figure out, so I don't know why Keen is, if anyone out there knows why Keen is so humid, they can let me know. But I think it's because we're a valley in between mountains. Be. So I, I think somehow the the wet air, it rains here a lot and the wet air gets sort of trapped somehow, but it's exactly. remarkably You humid. don't have any wind drying it. It right. just gets stuck there. Could Something be. Something like that. We, we should have a, a specialist in <laughs> we'll have a climatologist on you. <laughs> Yes, well, we, we should though you know this was a joke but we should have a specialist in climate change because that's something that well, that's you know we haven't sure. covered yet and we're not specialists but some, that's yeah. something that is very worrying at this time and it's that so is that worrying. is closely linked to genocide as well yeah definitely and and you know this new crime of ecocide etc that's something interesting that we could have someone talk about 
talking yeah, about climate. Yeah, we definitely need to, the world mm-hmm. needs to focus on that yeah. more. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, I've been thinking about this recently, not to get too off topic, but it's not all that off topic. You know, oh. that we are, we're face. it's that we're in an interesting sort of existential time where, you know, we're not facing simply hard times, but the possible extinction of our own species. And increasingly, when I talk to young people, this is sort of foremost on their minds. Like they will mention this out of context. So not when they're asked directly about it, but relevant to other things. So I asked one of my son's friends the other day how she was doing. And she said, well, you know, for a person who's living at the end of humanity, I guess I'm doing okay. And so this means that it's just, you know, right at at the top of their minds. Um, And it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting time. It's terribly sad, I think. And it's hard. Yeah, it makes daily life much harder. And, you know, I've had to realize that a lot of my sense of meaning, um, and there's a reason I'm saying this relevant to genocide prevention, but a lot of my sense of meaning has been tied up with uh, the continuation of the human species, you know, with the idea that we will continue in the future. This is why we invest so much time into genocide prevention is it's, exactly. it's kind of a faith in the value of our species, right? And exactly. the meaning of its continuation. And yet to do genocide prevention work at a time when our species may in fact, because it seems incapable of doing anything else, may in fact lead to its own extinction, along with the extinction of all the other plants and animals that in the last yeah. hundred years or so, we've destroyed through our economy. It's, it's, you know, it's an, it's an extra hurdle, right? To figure out why, why it is we do this and uh, where, exactly. where it loses, it loses meaning, like it the can, purpose, right? Yes. It can, it can seem to. So I've been struggling yeah. against that. Like, you know, how do we reinject this work with, with a meaning, even though we're facing what humans, many humans are worried about, are the end times, the end of our narrative. Things will continue after the human species, of course, but the, the human narrative won't continue, you know. So, so it's, it's an interesting conundrum. And I've realized that, you know, we need a, a kind of a new philosophy that, that addresses this reality, this existential crisis, because, I mean, I, I tend to believe that genocide is an existential crime. It's a crime that comes out of existential crises, that people mm-hmm. resort to genocide, not only for practical reasons, but, you know, if they're state leaders or something, but also because they just have a hard time seeing their future within the current meaning system or the current structures of power. And so they resort to genocide as a way to sort of re-articulate their power in the world. And so, mm-hmm. you know, if we're all facing this genocidal, I mean, pardon me, this existential crisis, then yes, that's another way in which it can lead to greater and greater genocidal thinking as a way to solve, you know, the kind of barren yeah. horror of, of existentialism, of this sense that we make our own meaning and there's no meaning in addition, you know, in, in, in the abstract, in a sense. Yes, I know. I haven't got that as deep as you, maybe because I still have, and mm. as, you know, call me as naive as you want, but maybe I still have hope that they, that there's something we can do to somehow stop this climate change. Yeah, I hope so right? too. I'm I'm always thinking, you know, you know, it's a cliche that people say hope is the last thing you lose, but 
at the end I'm right it's like such yes. a cliche but at the end it's true yeah no that is cliches tend to be true usually and I'm thinking that you know whenever I read a news that for example I think it was today or yesterday that I was reading a news of the U.S. trying to reduce this was it carbon emission or something mm-hmm. or whatever for the 80 to 85 percent of what is now uh, uh, releasing so I get hopeful yeah that there is a general conscience being constructed on the idea yeah. that we need to stop climate right. change. Right. Because if the world keeps getting warmer, like one or two degrees only, then there will be, as you say, the extinction of our species. So I think that gives, you know, meaning to thinking, well, you know, I guess the most existential question of a human being is what's my purpose in life, right? Exactly. And I think we think that you know genocide prevention and working somehow even if it's small work in the perspective of this big world even if it's small to help you know construct a better society right and um in that sense if one thinks that you know we're going to be extinct immediately then or not immediately but soon soon yeah, enough soon right enough. we've already gotten we've already gotten uh, um one degree warmer, I think, or mm. one and a half warmer. That, and I think I'm not a specialist either. I actually had a wonderful professor, a specialist on this, that we could invite to the podcast. Now that I'm thinking out loud, he worked on ecocide. He's um, mm. University of London, where I did my MA in human rights, and he spoke. He, he always speaks about how the consequences of the global warming have roots in in the sort of process of industrialization that was, you know, sure. that occurred 50, 60 years ago. So what right. we're doing now, which is consuming and producing a lot more, a system of economy that is more, more, like more productive, actually, then mm-hmm. in 50 years, we'll have what be 10, 10 degrees warming, and we cannot cope with that, of course. Yeah. But anyway, so I still feel that mm-hmm. there is or there could be hope and there could be enlightening in, in those who are in charge of making these policies and not only governments but companies as well you know we always put the emphasis in governments but it's companies and, and individual consumption as well uh in, in different aspects of life i think everyone is is in different degrees as well as everyone is responsible for for taking care of the situation that is really alarming it is so, so. alarming it really is and yeah. you know the companies and the governments that have to make these decisions they're they're all vested interests i mean they're deeply invested yes. in the in the oh. system that's created this as you know um and that's what worries me you know i think yeah. they're the last to learn they're the so last to learn. i think it's oh. going to be very painful mm-hmm. one way or another yeah. i think there is hope but the type of change is going to have to be rather radical it seems to me and it will mm-hmm. require you know, in a sense, a, a leap of consciousness, you know, a kind of evolution in totally. the way the human brain works and the way we make systems and the way we create society and the way we yeah. relate to it, one another. You know, when I'm, yes. Yeah, right. And people can no. see that. They can see that yeah. in the future. Like I, we talk about it all the time. Students, my students talk about it. Mm-hmm. We all talk about it in prevention. Do you know what... I, my my colleagues at, at, at Keene, we talk about this, right, in, in many different ways, how everything that's been constructed up to this point is no longer serving us and is having a yeah. negative impact, but we haven't quite found the next step, Yeah. right? So we haven't exactly. quite created the new institutions, 
but they are there and I and I sometimes look at the younger generation and I hate to put too much emphasis on them that's something my generation does all the time you know that we ex- we we hope we rest our hope in this young generation so that they're given the the, the horrible task of having to undo the of mess fixing everything oh, that right of all these all made. these preceding yes. generations it's i mean that's in a way it's that's very cruel on the other hand knowing them around the world you and i have met young people from all over mm-hmm. um you know they all they all do think about the world very differently than even i mean you're not even 40 yet right so mm-hmm. even than you so i think this yeah. this upcoming generation the folks who are like 15 to 20 now they they just have a very different view and so I'm, you know it's older people who have control of the levers of power in the world yes. so uh, if we could sort of relax those controls a little bit and allow these young people to create their world i think we'll be on a better path hopefully i put my hope you know i still don't want to exclude myself from you know making a change <laughs> But it's true. And I don't think you want to exclude yourself either. But we do. No, but I I don't think it's my generation. I I don't think that. No, and I think, yeah, the problem is, you know, how long do we have to make a change? I think that's the big question that, you know, we need someone to ask to try to reply that. I don't think no one knows exactly, but I don't think we have much time to make to make the essential changes that need to be made. So and like you said, it's a, like a social social organization that needs to be different. Even the state, we've talked about this, like the liberal state, borders, etc. I think all of that. Yeah, that's really relevant yeah. to what we're talking it's about really today. Relevant. Because what we see in the world is people actually doubling down on the worst of humanity, doubling down on our worst institutions, our worst inclinations. Exactly our worst quote-unquote problem-solving techniques, everything that's gotten us to where we are now, people seem to be doubling down. And I don't know how it is in Argentina, but in the U.S. it really feels, I've never seen my country as depressed as it is now. Even under Trump, people had more hope because there was this idea for those who were critics of Trump, oh, well, there'll be something after Trump and not much has changed and things seem to be getting worse. And, you know, I, I... and what we see is there's kind of a cruelty that's embedded in the U.S. system that seems to have taken over even smaller scale institutions, you know. So in higher education where I work, there are just so many professors, tenured professors being fired at mm-hmm. every institution. And this is part because COVID caused an economic crunch. It's part mm-hmm. because the business model that they've been pursuing for 40 years doesn't work in higher ed. We are not profit making. Higher ed does not make money. If it's working well, it shouldn't be making a profit, do you know? Um, but there's less and less government investment in higher ed. So, you know, these large structural issues are having an impact on everybody's daily lives in a way that's making people behave worse to one another. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, and it's giving people the sense that our institutions no longer work. I think that's why so few people are relative to other countries, why so many Americans are refusing the vaccine and masking is there's mm-hmm. just a widespread contempt for and distrust for our institutions, institutions all of them. How it's is it in Argentina? One. Well, it's, I think we've lost trust in our institutions long ago. Long ago. If there was ever, you know. <laughs> 
I'm thinking if there was ever any trust. I think Argentina is a whole chapter that we need to do in a different podcast. <laughs> we, do. we do. I would love to. <laughs> we could do one, but it's very difficult to trust your institutions mm. when you know, you had six dictatorships in the 20th century and then you, you're going from one economic crisis to the other yeah. with huge yeah. rates of hyperinflation in the 80s for anyone that knows you know a little bit of Argentina when they study hi hyperinflation Argentina in the 80s is one of the examples you know mm. so mm. I think I told you this a little bit about this Ellie but I think but still what you've said I think the pandemic has impacted even more in that credibility of the institutions in the sense that the pandemic and this is something you know has, has been said in many places but it sort of left nude or uncovered mm. the reality mm. before people were you know there was still the economy in Argentina although always disastrous was a little bit running people were working were having their own activities, their the everyday struggles with you know all of the problems we have here, but we were busy in that. All of the sudden, we stopped, and all of this disastrous reality of our institutions yeah. showed up nude in our faces. Mm -hmm. So, and of course, it has deepened the problems that Argentina already suffers because it stopped the economy and. Um, Anyway, that deep in poverty, mm. unemployment, etc. And I think in different scales, of course, I, I cannot compare the reality of the US to Argentina or to Europe or to Africa or other countries. But I think overall, in their own circumstances, I think the, the pandemic has given up, uh, has given us like individually and maybe as a collective too, that idea that this isn't working that well and yeah. that we can't really trust and, and, you know, moving aside from the conspiracy theories or anything like this, this was so unclear, you know, and we've spoken about this, about the pandemic, how everything came out to wear masks, not to wear masks, to eat this, not to, you know, it's just been so ridiculous that even international institutions like the, the world health organization did information that was like wrong in the beginning, later corrected it itself permanently so there's a huge disbelief on that too. Yeah. And um, so maybe, you know, there is, uh, I wish there were room for a restructuring of that would, you know, not that would benefit the powerful, but that would benefit the majority of the people. Because once yeah. again, climate change, the pandemic uh, has deepened and, and affects more poor societies, totally. you know. Usually the climate change affects poor people mainly. Absolutely. So anyway, so we, we've, we've covered half of our program in, in, in the topic. We, we weren't even thinking <laughs> We weren't to even cover, planning to talk about. We weren't even planning. But, but it's I very guess it's relevant. That is, it's very relevant and, and it, it has everyone very worried. Like you yeah. said, you talk to people and, you know, one has the everyday ordinary mm -hmm. worries. But then still there's this general worry when you read the news and also when you live your life. You know, yeah. you go to the sea and you see all this pollution. You go to a street and you see it's the pollution of the so river. True. It's everywhere, it's, isn't it? It's everywhere. It's everywhere. You, it's you, the water you drink is polluted. Right. You know, if you, the, everything. So it's very depressing. Yeah, it's hard. very depressing. Mm -hmm. So um, it's hard, you know. And so, I mean, maybe that's where genocide prevention has a really, it's not a niche issue mm -hmm. or a niche interest. It has 
a relevance, uh, mm -hmm. a broad relevance, you know, in the sense that genocide prevention is a way of fighting for the meaning, not just of every individual human life, but of human life in common. Yeah. Our life in common. I um, like that. Human life in common. Right? That's nice. So, it's, so we are fighting. So I've realized that we're not just trying to prevent genocide, you know, in discrete communities around the world, mm -hmm. discrete nations. But our work is also aimed, in a sense, at, at, at keeping us from killing ourselves, right? <laughs> this kind of mass <laughs> omnicide that our current institutions are leading us towards. Mm -hmm. um, so it's interesting, you know, so that's, that's sort of where I've ended up is, oh, yeah, we have this sort of, it's sort of a larger program. It's not just preventing discrete genocides anymore, mm -hmm. but it's, it's preventing yeah. human beings from doing away with our species. Mm -hmm. Because honestly, you know, if we make a collective effort to prevent genocide, uh, the changes that we have to make will also prevent the, you know, disappearance of our species on planet absolutely. earth yeah mm -hmm. so absolutely so on that yeah. note right let's talk about <laughs> so, let's talk about these things in detail right exactly. so we were going to talk about um you read this uh this armenian brief right yeah this is I great read... so tell us about mm -hmm. that i haven't had a chance to take a look at it yet so it's very exciting I... No, it's very exciting. We'll probably follow up on this because this is just the beginning of, mm -hmm. of Armenians' claim before the International Court of Justice. And I know that Azerbaijan has done a counterclaim that I haven't read yet, um, but I'm looking forward to read it and then looking forward to whatever measures might be taken by the ICJ, that's mm -hmm. the International Court of Justice, and um, how the case will develop. So briefly... Um, this was presented by Armenia on uh, 16 September, so very recently. And uh, what's very, very interesting is that Armenia, let me see if I can read some parts that are interesting, but the application, this, this part sort of summarizes what Armenia is presenting, what, what is the claim that is presenting. And this application concerns the legal dispute between Armenia and Azerbaijan, regarding Azerbaijan's violation of the International Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Racial Discrimination. These violations are directed at individuals of Armenian ethnic or national origin, regardless of their actual nationality. And anyway, I'll go briefly to the content. It's very interesting. Um, you can actually find it in the ICJ website. And it sort of gives a recount of the different cases of, of violence through hate crimes or discourses of hate that Azerbaijan commonly uh, issues against Armenian individuals or against the Armenian population as a collective. So it puts examples, for example, of the persecution of Armenians within Azerbaijan, how very few are left within the country of Azerbaijan, and those that exist for example, try to hide their identity. Mm. There are also cases, they brought up different cases of actual uh, violence against individuals. There is a famous case where the guilty person was Sarafov. I can't remember now yes, the, the name of Safarov. Uh, Safarov. Yeah. 
the, I can't remember now the case of the Armenian, the name of the Armenian soldier that was killed, but they, he was killed in, ha in Hungary. Yes, if you could please look, because mm -hmm. the, the claim is, the brief is like 60 something pages <laughs> and it will be a little bit, well, I, I guess if I can put he, stuff Yeah, he off. killed Armenian army lieutenant Gurgen Margarian. Yeah, and his Margarian. name was Ramil Safarov. Safarov. He, they were together in a gathering in Hungary and Safarov broke into his room and killed him with a machete. Yeah, with an axe. He was, with an axe. Oh. He was uh, sentenced to uh, life imprisonment, but then he was um, extradited to Azerbaijan as per request of Azerbaijan. Of course, when he arrived to Azerbaijan, he was given a a higher rank or higher position in in the military and he was set free right. and the conditions of hungary to extradite him was that he would uh, continue to fulfill his uh sentence and that that sentence would be revised at 25 years after 25 years had passed but so this is sort of an example of how our, uh, Azerbaijan is treating a person that killed an Armenian as Armenian is perceived as the enemy, is usually also portrayed in a grotesque way. Mm -hmm. The claim or the brief also mentions, for example, this trophy park that we've oh mentioned God. in pre previous podcasts. You can you can go ahead and, and look at a previous podcast on Armenia or the conflict of Armenia and Azerbaijan when we particularly talk about this, this mockery of Armenians or of Armenian torture and death, etc. So the brief puts a lot of emphasis on that hate speech as well, represent given by representatives of the government of Azerbaijan, and um, I think it's it's uh, it's 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 very good. It's excellent. There's another interesting uh, uh, example that I didn't know, but there is there has been uh, or there the in Azerbaijan they're doing a sort of um it's it's identity or genetic data uh, um, compilations. So people oh my God. that have Armenian blood do are not married or Azerbaijanis do not marry people with Armenian blood sort of has to wow kind of yes it's, so it's, they are uh, requiring like dna yeah, are requiring tests for marriage DNA. to approve yes. of marriages exactly wow, that's so that's to, so reminiscent it, of the third reich yes exactly so in order for azerbaijanis to know who they would marry so that their blood wouldn't i guess get changed or something by marrying an armenian or so the situation this different the speeches even the 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 um, sort of amnesty to uh safarov and other different cases that been you know like the teaching in schools as well there's a lot of teaching in about uh, or to not not just to hate uh, no it's not about hating Armenians but it's it's a portraying of Armenians that would you know create a culture of hate toward towards Armenian and it starts at a very early age and we saw that in the trophic part for example where children were like playing with the with the different um, Armenian soldiers that were mocked. Uh, done as mannequins or something in the in the park and uh, all of this has been in several times has brought attention to different bodies including the committee 
that monitors the 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 compliance with the convention against racial discrimination mm -hmm. but what is interesting and i find this very interesting is that despite these different observations that have been you know given by committees by different organizations like governmental organizations mainly international governmental organizations is that this still continues and there is no measures put towards stopping this. So uh, Armenia, pardon me, is requesting for provisional measures to stop this. So we'll see what the ICJ does, right? All of this, like I said, I'm going to repeat this because it's interesting. All of this, and it gives me thoughts, you know, of why isn't Azerbaijan being stopped internationally? What is happening that Azerbaijan continues with this public hate speech, public education of children to hate Armenians? Mm -hmm killing of Armenians many times. Well, now with the prisoners of war, for example, having the prisoners of war, this also has catch international condemnation, but nothing is being done, pragmatically speaking, in order to stop this situation. So what we'll see, what is, what is uh, the outcome of this ICJ case? Yeah, it's, it's very interesting and very exciting. And, uh, I, I am, I'm assuming it would set a very interesting precedent um, just simply by filing the case in the first place yeah. uh, to sort of take a country to the ICJ for racially discriminatory policies and speech. I find that exactly. an exciting idea. Yeah, it's evident that filing it in the committee is yeah. not sufficient. Right. right. For, right. for people that don't know, each international convention has a committee in the UN, has a committee following up right. the compliance with the provisions. Right. And it's evidently that's not sufficient because, you know, the, the whenever the committee gives an opinion or, or an observation, it says we observe and we sort of are worried about. But there's there's not much more than that. Mm -hmm. You know, we. Um, so. We'll see what the ICJ is actually going to do with this and how it will follow up with this situation. Because this is, this is you know, it's not only it, the aim, and that's why I think it's so interesting for us or so important that we talk about this, is the aim, the, the persecution of Armenians is because of their identity. And there's also mentioning of the destruction of different cultural elements. Yeah. I mean, the, the brief is very complete the destruction of sort of the 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 goal seems to destruct the Armenian identity in the region, to eliminate mm. the Armenian identity, for example, in Azerbaijan, to eliminate it from Artsakh as well, and who knows eventually how far there it can go. Right. Um, because there's no stopping to this. No. So it's it's very interesting to see in the brief all of these different examples and the important also given to the cultural destruction that happened, you know, after the war in Arsakh and we've spoken about this and now it's happening with the prisoners of war that are being judged under different crimes of uh, under the, the local criminal code with no possibility of of any international monitoring or anything. I mean, it's, it's, it's very difficult. So what will happen? This is sort of a life and death matter. Mm -hmm. This is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, it's an uh, existential matter for the Armenian state and the Armenian people in the region. I really agree <laughs> with Armenians on that point. 
that yeah. you know things have reached a point with Azerbaijan, particularly now that Turkey, well, Turkey's always been allied with Azerbaijan, but that Turkey's taking a very vocal and explicit, you know, aggressive role exactly. in the South Caucasus region. Um, particularly exactly. with think, that reality, yeah. you know, I, I agree that there really is, this is, uh, you know, this is an assault on on sovereignty, right? on that old concept, state sovereignty, yeah. which also signals um, really a genocidal ideology on the part mm -hmm. of the people doing the assaulting exactly. um, in that they want they, they they do seem to want to do away with Armenianness as such in the region yeah mm -hmm. exactly that's what it I mean all of this and 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 you know I can't really portray it as good as the brief that this mm. it rep, I think it represents quite well or the the hate that Azerbaijan is expressing in, di in its different actions is mm. it's very well portrayed in the brief and it's something that you know we've seen you know more than a hundred years ago actually exactly. it's very similar it's very and similar that we've, it's very similar and that we've mm. seen again repeat over time mm -hmm. and now recently uh, less well almost a year ago mm. So it's it's of deep concern, and as you said, is it's again a threat to their existence in the region. Yeah, you know. And, the, go ahead. Sorry. No, I just I just wanted to give this, and I don't want to speculate on you know like political matters, but I think without the help of Turkey, probably Azerbaijan will you know not be able to do as much as it does. And I think it also prevents Azerbaijan from, like the international community probably from somehow stopping Azerbaijan or putting measures on Azerbaijan, etc. is because Turkey is behind. Um, and I think that is, that is what's more worrying <laughs> than anything else, because we know, you know, we know the reality and we know the continuing denial of the Armenian genocide by, by yeah. of the Armenian genocide by Turkey. So... Yeah, you know, I, I mean, I think this is this is from the point of view of genocide prevention, this is great because it mm -hmm. gives us a way of homing in on the most important factor here, which is that um, a great deal of what Azerbaijan is doing is fueled by anti-Armenian racial hatred. Yeah, right. Exactly. Um, and so so we're you know, it's a way of kind of flagging that Azerbaijan has a genocidal ideology, which Yology. in this case is mm -hmm. based in a kind of racialism. Mm -hmm. um, without having to go through, you know, the motions, the very difficult motions of trying to prove a case of genocide uh, where okay. you don't have sort of mass murder, you know, and all of the requirements of special intent, et cetera. I mean, maybe we do, but that's just such a, that is such a difficult um, process. So this is a way, you know, mm -hmm. of stating because it's so obvious that there's racial hatred against Armenians. Yes. It's a way of bringing it to the public attention um, without having to get bogged down by, by, by this term genocide. And yet what it really is pointing to 
is a potential genocide in the future, right? It's pointing exactly. to all of these red flags and early warning indicators of genocide, but just doing so uh, without naming the word, uh, which, you know, unfortunately that word has become such a hot potato um, that yes. I, I think it's very smart to do it in this way. And it's, it certainly draws our attention to the right thing. And if this is addressed, if this kind of hatred in Azerbaijan is addressed and contained and, and sort of properly approached by the international community, it will have the effect of reducing the chance of genocide in that region against Armenians, you know, so it will serve the purpose of genocide prevention without having to exactly. get, you know, gummed up by the debates about genocide. Exactly. Really, I, I hope uh, this measures, my only concern is that mm. there has been so much condemnation internationally of the different actions of Azerbaijan, and yet yeah. nothing has been done. Nothing. And with the reality um, that Azerbaijan has, there's no room for any form of dialogue that should start amongst Armenian and Azerbaijan as well in order to pacify eventually the region. Because this is an ongoing conflict. The conflict we saw last year of the 44-day conflict will repeat again and again and again if there's nothing done. Right. Not only to stop, and to put measures in Azerbaijan to stop, but also to create a room for actual dialogue. That was supposed to be like the Minsk group and all of that, but apparently it didn't work. You know, right. like every conflict is naturalized and then there's not put enough attention or there is a political interest or an economic interest, etc. And then again, violence serves the violence serves that pur those purposes. And then again, this hate that seems to be in these actions and speeches etc rises up again yeah. so but i think it is it is relevant that they haven't you know pointed it as a case of genocide that mm -hmm. is always more difficult to the evidence is more difficult and the, the whole situation is more difficult mm -hmm. to to prove in in accord with the icj because even if the icj deals with states and not individuals it has previously also stated that, you know, the states are responsible, could be responsible for genocide. So, but I think this is very smart. I think doing this points out, as what you said, as the important part, which is the discrimination yeah. against the Armenian identity. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, I mean, it's really true. And if you look at the map, which we will put up um, on our website, if you look at a map of the region, Armenia is again in the way of yeah, Turkish of expansionism and of and yeah. it's and it's definitely in the way its borders are in the way of a direct link between Azerbaijan yeah. and Turkey Iran, Azerbaijan, and that whole yeah. yeah there's that whole little exactly. piece of it's Armenia a, the Siyunik yes. province that just cuts up right Azerbaijan two pieces of Azerbaijan yeah. and then mainland Azerbaijan from from Turkey and so exactly. and you know there are all these pipelines and oil interests this goes back to the climate change discussion nothing good comes of pipelines nothing good comes of oil it's 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 so mm -hmm. destructive it has been so destructive and again this those interests are also behind a lot of the silence we've seen internationally mm -hmm. on the yeah. question of Azerbaijan's behavior. And of, yeah, and of course, you know, I, I hope not to offend any Armenians, but it's not a country that is powerful enough mm. to 
to put itself in and say stop this because yeah. you know it's it's not like Russia or Turkey no, itself. No, I think it has United three million States, people. Country. It's small. Yeah, it's a small mountainous. It doesn't have it's oil. New, exactly, it's a new recent republic that right. just you know uh, right. very recent. It it has a it's it's still building itself. Uh, institutionally wise its institutions are still recently actually changed from being you know like to to become a parliamentarian system so it's still in the process of being created Mm -hmm. as a nation of as a state not as a nation because the armenians are a nation longer than than the liberal state but um so it is it is very it's a very concerning scenario for Armenians, but yeah. hopefully, I mean, I'm very, I was very happy about this claim. Yeah. I, I fully supportive, of course, <laughs> and endorse it myself. And hopefully, we can follow up on definitely on what up. will come up in the ICJ. So we'll usually the... they tend to be slow, but you know, <laughs> it's true. Yeah. We will put the claim up on our website. So if you want yeah. a quick, um, quick access to it, just look at IraqProject.org. Mm-hmm. Exactly, um, and it'll be up there. Yeah. Well, that's great. So, I mean, in a way, that's very good news, right? It's very good news. Mm-hmm. It's very good. Yeah, I was very mm-hmm. happy. I, I was particularly very happy. And some of the members of the Armenian community I know were very happy, too. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it gives hope. Yeah. It's it's a good case. Finally. It's a good it's a good brief. Very good. Well, thank you, Irena, for that. That's really, really exciting and, and very, very interesting. And it'll be fun to, to watch it go through sort of the system. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. So we want to. So we're going to move from that to discussions about the U.S. The U.S. is in the news oh. these days, in ways that you know, are very concerning. So uh, yeah. the IPG recently issued a statement on Texas's anti-abortion law SB8, which has gotten, I think, a lot of media attention, both inside and outside of the United States. And our statement was um, meant to call attention to the genocidal aspects of this law, right? In particular, we wish to call attention to the fact that uh, all genocidal ideologies and regimes have uh, attempted to exercise reproductive control against women's bodies. And that can take different forms. It can be a form of pronatalism, that is the abolition of abortion and the promotion of, of, of maternity, of birth giving, which is like SB8. Um, but it also can be a policy of antinatalism, so forced abortions mm-hmm. and the prohibition exactly. of maternity. Um, and sometimes there's a combination, usually there's a combination of both of these used mm-hmm. within genocidal regimes or genocidal armed forces in order to selectively promote one group over others, right, while destroying others. But, um, but you know, what we're pointing out is that, is that it's a key feature of genocidal ideology to mm-hmm. focus in on women's bodies as a as a way to sort of talk about and control a world that is uncontrollable and hard to understand, you know? And so that's what we see happening in in Texas. And of course, as many people, as many commentators have pointed out, the, the bill, which is being called by its promoters, the Heartbeat Bill or the Heartbeat Act, um, has the added 
constitutional concern in the United States of deputizing individual people mm-hmm. as the enforcers of the... Yes, I, I was going to ask about this, if you could explain about this this very specific yeah. aspect of the law. Yeah, well, the law is... So I'm not a lawyer, but here's what mm-hmm. I understand about the law, that the law is written, and I've, we've read the law, We read it as part of creating this statement. But the law is written to avoid a constitutional challenge at the Supreme Court Mm -hmm. by avoiding state entities, by avoiding um, um, making state entities responsible for enforcing the law. So what it allows is individual Texans who are not associated with the state to sue people who help women gain get an abortion, who aid and abet, that's the language. Exactly. Women get an abortion, to sue them in a court of law for up to $10,000 and then to have their legal fees covered as well by the person being sued if the court finds against this person. And it disallows members of the government, including police officers, from being involved in, in this sort of enforcement. And Mm -hmm. that way, it's trying to avoid the appearance of infringing on women's constitutional rights because the argument is it is not state agents or state entities Mm -hmm. that are blocking women's exercise of what were recognized to be their constitutional rights in the 1973 case of Roe versus Wade. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I don't, I mean, that seems specious to me. That seems like specious logic. And if we had mm-hmm. a Supreme Court in the United States that that uh, that we could count on to be fair and non-discriminatory in the way that it, you know, makes decisions, then, then perhaps this case wouldn't, or this act wouldn't be quite as frightening. Mm-hmm. But the problem is, is that there were three Supreme Court judges nominated under President Trump, which as we know, who, as we know, um, you know, was at the forefront of a kind of radical right wing movement to <laughs> take over the well, US and government. And one of them right? actually accused of, 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 uh, of committing sexual crimes, right. of rape. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So. exactly. And another one of them being clearly anti-abortion. Um, so yeah, so this is this is the situation. And it's a very, very strange law. One can only imagine what kind of reality will emerge out of this law, which is in effect because the Supreme Court refused to block it, right? So there were organizations seeking an emergency decision to block the law until it could be heard in the various courts, um, and, and the Supreme Court refused to do that. So it is now in effect. Um, some organizations in Texas have been blocked from bringing, of course, there are all these right-wing pro life, quote unquote, organizations that could bring cases against people for aiding and abetting abortion. They've been blocked by various courts. So, you know, it's in quasi effect, this law in Texas. And one can only imagine, I mean, women themselves who are seeking abortions cannot be sued according to this law. It's only those who help them. But it's that kind of branding that is so is such a red flag for genocide when you isolate through law a population and make it dangerous to help them 
um, you know, it's a form of branding that, that just has a very dark history in, in modern nation states. Um, so that's, that's what we're worried about is, is the precedence that this sets without really taking a position on abortion itself. That is, in a sense, beside the point. This is about the right to autonomy over our bodies or the right to sovereignty, right? Sovereign decision-making control over the disposal of our bodies and the right to exist um, in human society as full exactly. and equal members of that society. And something that is worrying, too, is that already... The discussion of abortion is a discussion that is very heated and mm -hmm. it divides society. Mm -hmm. Every society is divided because of the different beliefs. So the law putting emphasis on this, accusing someone of helping, also creates a more divisive, a more yes. divided society. Yes. It could create more violence, more than the one that already is usually in these discussions of, like you said, like pro pro life in between quote unquote. <laughs> In between quotation marks, exactly. And those who are uh, pro-abortion or pro-decriminalizing abortion, right? I always try to make that difference mm -hmm, mm -hmm. very important. Um, so I think that's very worrying. It's a law that sort of creates more division among the topic that it's already dividing people. Right. Right. So that it's already dividing people. And I think one of the reasons is because, again, as you said, women women cannot have autonomy in general, right? Exactly. right? And just thinking of women with autonomy is something that creates fear, I think. I don't know fear of what, but it <laughs> seems like that. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Well, yeah, I think, well, it's one I'm of those exactly things. I'm not sure. Well, it's of one what of, kind in, of in a patriarchal system where mm -hmm. patriarchs assume that they should have control over women yeah. and children and whatever else, their animals and their homestead, um, and society, whenever one of those entities begins to um, begins to accrue independence, mm -hmm. right, that I think that it's just human nature yeah, to try and keep what you have. It's a reaction. It's a reaction. It's a total it's reaction. A reaction. Yeah, you know that's what, what I'm the, saying. It's a, right. It's a fear. It's just a. It's just a fear, fear like an abstract. Yeah, it's just a fear. Right. Some, it's a reaction. Yeah. And just... and Ellie, I I don't want to go too long on this or make you put you on the spot, but can you contextualize a little bit what was before, how was before in Texas, and how how it is briefly on the rest of the country in the U.S. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, this is this is not my specialty, but, you know, we had this law, Roe versus Wade in 1973, yep. um, which made which which legalized abortion up to the through the third month. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and in in, you know, with certain restrictions up through the yep. sixth month. So the first two trimesters mm -hmm. and established this as a right of women under mm -hmm. the Constitution. Um, so that's been the law of the federal government and of the land, mm -hmm. but there have ha, ever since then, there have been efforts, which in the last 20 years have been quite successful to kind of chip away at that right on the margins. Mm -hmm. So, you know, laws requiring women to wait 48 hours before they make a decision Mm -hmm. or laws that require doctors to have women listen to the heartbeat before okay. they make a decision, mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. laws that require parental consent for girls under 18 mm -hmm. 
who are seeking an abortion mm-hmm. or laws that make it more difficult for abortion for clinics that perform abortions to operate such that most of them in some states have closed down okay. so there are very very few clinics already in texas that perform abortions so it's already we even before sb8 before this so-called heartbeat act um it was very difficult for women in mm-hmm. in texas to to get an abortion to get an abortion mm-hmm. yeah but now it just puts everybody who loves a woman or helps a woman um at risk of financial ruin exactly um, which is such mm-hmm. a it's such an insidious way to go about this it seems to me yeah. um mm-hmm. you know because if you imagine this law <laughs> establishes that you can that any abortion that's committed after the sixth week of pregnancy mm-hmm. right uh you can sue people who helped that right whether it's yeah. the doctor or the uber driver or the or the husband yeah. or well, the mother or whatever mm-hmm. you could sue those people right um, if the abortion was performed after six weeks. And most women don't even know they're pregnant at six weeks. Exactly. You've only missed one period, you know. So the likelihood that women will be able to determine they're pre- pregnant before that is very low. And then, you know, it, it means that any woman, since you don't show, there's no physical sign of pregnancy mm-hmm. at six weeks, you know, it really makes any woman of childbearing age, so let's say from age 12 through 50, right, mm-hmm. um, a hot potato, a potential danger. Yeah. So, you know, there's this organization called Planned Parenthood in the United States that offers all sorts of um, health care. So not mm-hmm. just abortions, but many Planned Parenthood co- clinics also offer abortions. Um, and Planned Parenthood, because of right-wing marketing has has sort of become associated with abortion in the minds of Americans. Um, But yet many indigent or low income Americans have have relied on both men and women on Planned Mm -hmm. Parenthood for medical care, particularly sexual health care. So they go there for, um, you know, they go there for ovarian cysts or they go there for, you know, various troubles that you have. Um, So who's going to drive? a woman to plant parenthood to, uh, yes because anymore they may, yeah right so you know there are things like that or who's mm-hmm. going to go with a woman to planned parenthood if she's getting her first like a young girl who's getting her first gynecological exam exactly. it makes it dangerous for 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 mm-hmm. you know people to go with them um so it's a, it's a it's a tricky situation that way i i think this is just a terrible law i'm shocked that the supreme court didn't didn't block it and mm-hmm. and it's depressing and you know as always there's you know genocide you know it doesn't happen all at once it's a slow erosion of people's yeah. rights over time and there are certain laws when you look at genocides that have happened in you know, uh, nation states governed by law, Mm -hmm. there are certain laws that become these sort of gateway laws, like they open up a whole new set of Mm -hmm. possibilities for statecraft. And Mm -hmm. uh, some of those laws are the deprivation of citizenship. Whenever a state is Mm -hmm. depriving people of citizenship, that's a red flag. Other ones are control over uh, reproductive health and the deprivation exactly. of control over reproduction. Mm-hmm. Um, those are other red flags. And these are gateway laws. So once, if this is determined to be constitutional, the state can start discriminating against people legally 
in all sorts of other ways as well, simply by using civil, civilian lawsuits, right? Citizen lawsuits, this model. Exactly. And another thought that I have, and I don't know if this is the case with with this particular law in the U.S. Mm. Um, I, I'm not an expert in, in the U.S. or anything, but usually, and I'm thinking, you know, you can you can express your thought about this, but usually these laws could come out in a time, and that's why I'm thinking in the U.S. in particular, on this law in particular, where women rights Mm-hmm. could be sort of blooming or whether yeah. movements pro women yeah. rights like the me too movement that spread mm-hmm. all over the world etc so when women are acquiring more rights or you know quote unquote a better status in society then there comes a law that again tries to somehow control an important part of, of a woman's life yeah, right like exactly. it's like it's the autonomy over the body yeah exactly. and and it's it's interesting that it's they pick the topic or the topic <laughs> right yeah. like that divides society already right. so much everywhere where you know yeah. this abortion yeah. laws are discussed so that's yeah, I mean, always... that's profoundly, profoundly important what you're pointing out. This exactly. is a cynical law, do you know? I don't, be- I mean, maybe some of the um, drafters of the law believe are against abortion for some moral purpose, but um, this is a manipulation of people's yeah. moral sensibilities. Exactly. You know, to, right, for, for very cynical ends, which is to put mm-hmm. women back in their place and to enable the state to start infringing on people's uh civil rights and constitutional rights and autonomy in new ways right that harken back to the u.s's horrible history of disenfranchisement slavery jim crow right all sorts of ways in which the law has been used in the united states to deprive people of their human and civil rights yeah of their autonomy freedoms of their their freedoms yeah exactly Exactly. you know and and you're also pointing out that you know i mean in in many societies that went on to commit genocide the movement that committed the genocide was also profoundly anti-feminist so Mm -hmm. and reacting against feminism so Mm -hmm. in germany in weimar germany this was a time of of the flourishing of women's rights Mm -hmm. and lgbtq rights and experimentation with these new roles that people could play in society as public people in the public um Mm -hmm. you know the nazi party was a backlash against that as much Mm -hmm. as it was an anti-semitic movement so these things were all tied together and it's similar in rwanda in the 1990s this was a an awakening moment of civil society organizations including women's organizations and Hutu Mm -hmm. power, which committed the genocide against Tutsis was profoundly patriarchal and profoundly Mm -hmm. interested Mm -hmm. in cracking down on, on women's newfound freedoms. Mm -hmm. Um, So we find this a lot. It's, it's a, it's a common pattern in all genocidal processes. And whereas I think people in the United States, many of them would have a hard time seeing how the United States would ever end up in, in some kind of mass murder type of genocide like the Holocaust mm-hmm. or the Rwandan or the 1994 genocide against the Tutsi of Rwanda. Um, you know, I don't think Weimar Germany or 1990 Rwanda mm-hmm. um, expected that no. within a very short time, short time, you know, exactly. they would kill millions of people. Millions of people. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. 
I, I fully agree. So anyone who wants to learn a little bit more about uh, the history of abortion in the United States and kind of the background to this law and hear an, an extended discussion of the law uh, can listen to another podcast, which I found really good now and then, did a special podcast. This is the podcast of Heather Cox Richardson, who's a professor of history at Boston College, who for the last four years has been doing has, has sort of gained um, fame in the United States for doing daily rundowns of the news. She has this really interesting podcast called Now and Then, and they did a great segment on the history on the, of oh, abortion. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to listen to it. Yeah, definitely. It's really good. And one of the things they point out is that abortion was legal until the 1880s in the United States. So in no way, you know, generally these backlash folks tend to uh, portray themselves as going back to a better time, uh, you know, to be traditionalists and conservatives. Um, but there's nothing traditional about blocking abortion in the United States at all. Yeah, yeah. So, so Very I mean, I guess our last bit of news is the U.S. <laughs> again. Yeah, again. In related exactly. news. Sorry, when you pointed out that people tend, in general, let's yeah. not, well, it's so horrible to generalize, wouldn't think of the U.S., you know, imagining a genocide. When we look at this news that you'll put up now, that you'll, you'll comment on now, then one fears that, yeah, well, maybe genocide against certain people could happen, actually. Yeah, one begins people. to And that's see. the whole idea of genocide, mm -hmm. is against certain groups, mm -hmm. right? It's the destruction of certain groups. So, and this covers a very important, um, a very important part of the, the current society, you know, the current world, the issues of the current world. Yeah, and we'll talk about them. So definitely... Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Raise them. You raised them. You raised them at the beginning of this podcast, but I hope you'll raise them again now. Um, those sort of global global tie-ins to this news, and this is, of course, for everyone who's listening, you may have guessed that this is um, uh, the recent treatment of Haitian refugees and asylum seekers at the U.S. border. So this past week on September nineteenth. Um, horrible photos came out of border agents on horseback forcing back um, Haitian refugees who are, of course, fleeing gang violence, a recent earthquake, um, uh, a political assassination of their president, right? Like it's a failed a state. Failed I think state. think of it's one of the poorest nations in the world, right. actually. And it's I, I think if we think of a failed state in the Americas, right. we could think of Haiti. Absolutely. Right? So. Absolutely. And it's a close neighbor mm -hmm. of the United States. So it stands to reason that that people fleeing Haiti are going to try and come to the United States. But anyway, the um, U.S. Border Patrol treated them with um, absolute barbarism, uh, as, as you know, it was described. And if you've seen the photos, which we will put up on yeah. our website, these were largely white men on horseback in border patrol uniforms using what was called long reins on their horses, but they looked like whips. 
And if you look at their hands, they certainly seem to be wielding these long reins as whips to force back people, including families, including people carrying newborn, what appeared to be newborn babies. Um, and this, you know, just harkened back to what is a, a, a particular sort of American terror which is our history of slave patrols from the 17th, which started in the 17th and 18th century in the American South, um, which were the, the sort of origins, at least in the Southern states, of our modern day police forces. Um, and these slave patrols were used to hunt down enslaved people who had fled not just to, to other southern states or within the South, but at some point, the United States also passed a law that allowed, uh, allowed escaped enslaved persons who made it north to be mm -hmm. handed back over, to be arrested in the north and handed back over to their um, slave owners, right? The owners in the South. And so at some point in the United States, as an ins a formerly enslaved person, there was no place to run apart from Canada or Terrible. Mexico mm -hmm. to escape slavery. So even in, even in states where slavery was illegal, a person who had escaped slavery could be sent back. And... Uh, many, you know, we don't know the exact numbers, but many free black mm -hmm. people in the United States were forced into slavery that way. They were kidnapped, sent to the South, and sold into slavery. So this is a horrific history um, mm -hmm. that was, you know, that, that these photos echoed uh, in yeah. the mounted white men on horseback with things that looked like whips, you know, accosting the bodies of black people on mm -hmm. a borderland. Just absolutely horrific. And in the wake of this, there has been a huge outcry in the mm -hmm. United States uh, for many reasons. One of them being that there was hope amongst some Americans that the very cruel policies of the Trump administration, which I should note, um, some of which were inherited from the Obama administration before mm -hmm. him. So they weren't yeah. simply the result yeah. of Trump's antipathy for, 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 uh, for, for refugees, right, or, or yeah, immigrants, refugees right. or immigrants, yeah. Um, but you know, some people were hoping that once there's a new administration after Biden was elected president in November 2020, that uh, this new administration would would take a different um, path, right? Have different policies mm -hmm. towards immigrants, and this has not borne itself out. And so, this seemed to be, a, you know, a clear example of continuing cruelty. To immigrants at the southern border. Yeah, it's, it's like a public policy that it's common to every government. Seems like that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's it's just the public policy of exactly of the U.S. Immigrants. of the U.S. Of the towards US, towards immigrants. the government that is right. you know sitting in the White House. But right. also my my question would be, or my thought relates to the fact that even if the policy changes, 
this white man on top of the horses might not change their mentality. No. So this is this is something we've discussed about other areas of the world where there's violence exercised by different groups. Right. So this these people have to be deconstructed. Like I you absolutely know, that word that that these people have to be even mm. if the ch- policy changes towards Biden in I mean in Biden's administration, which unfortunately I'm not ho- too hopeful. Although I, I guess he has apologized, right, or something mm-hmm, for this mm-hmm. situation. Even if it changes towards a more understanding of immigration, of understanding view and, and holistic view of immigration, uh, there there is a deep need to deconstruct the mentality of the border police and general police in the United States. I think this is something we've talked about a bit, but I, uh, before. Not maybe in podcast, I think, but that we should cover in podcast as well the need to restructure the different security forces. Because Absolutely. individually, I'm not sure the policy says to whip people, but maybe individually these people are willing to do so. Maybe it was their individual right. decision to do so. So and and well, even if it's a policy, it's a problem. But if it's individual as well, it's a huge problem because they're sitting in places where they have the power to exercise mm-hmm. that, that this level of brutality. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it looks like that, that sorry, Ellie, that, that, that this, what you've said, it echoed the times where there was, you know, slavery was legal. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. uh, now, even though it's legal, I, I still think slavery exists, unfortunately, but... This it's embedded in them, or they have this mentality, right? Individually speaking, what, what do you think about this? Well, yeah, I mean, I think there is white supremacist mentality is a general thing in the United States that you know all white Americans need to account for and be vigilant about, mm-hmm. um, and you know, within some groups and some political identities it's it's heralded as as a uh, a birthright of white men in particular <laughs> and it's seen as a positive thing um and i think you know there there have been studies that have shown that you know especially in the last 40 or so years there's been a self-selection of um, white nationalists into mm-hmm. u.s police forces but particularly okay. since 9-11 into the border patrol and mm-hmm. into ICE, right? Immigration, okay, the, customs the immigration. enforcement. Mm-hmm. Okay. And mm-hmm. so there have been calls to dismiss. So both border patrol and ICE um, fall under uh, the Homeland Security Agency of the government, okay. of the federal government that was created after 9-11 as part of the horrible Patriot Act, right? That um, has you know been in force, I think, until last year. Um, Mm -hmm. that deprived, you know, Americans of all sorts of civil liberties and empowered and militarized all of our secure, our our entire security Mm -hmm. apparatus. And so there have been calls as well to dismantle Homeland Security and with it, Customs and Border Patrol and, and ICE. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, if, if, if one's analyzing the United States according to genocide prevention, that could be the most important institutional mm-hmm. step yeah. that is taken uh, because there there's also been some indication that um, 
that the training that people receive, especially in in border patrol, mm-hmm. uh, is in itself quite discriminatory and quite um, mm-hmm. extremist. Okay. Um, and border patrol on the southern border, which is a place I'm hoping that the Iraq project can visit and do work mm-hmm. at, right? Um, because it's a place, it's a space in the world needing genocide prevention work. Um, on the southern border, there are not, there's not just sort of legally armed border patrol agents, but there are all of these um, almost paramilitary militias that work with okay. border patrol in, in mm-hmm. not an official way, unofficially, but, but that are associated with white supremacist groups and have committed murders, actual murders against um, refugees, asylum seekers, and immigrants. So it's, it's a, you know, if you think about Manifest Destiny and the United States' westward expansion in the 19th mm-hmm. century and the kind of frontier lawlessness that that created yeah, exactly. where every white mm-hmm. man was was judge and jury and executioner um yeah, it's true you know that's what we see still on the southern border although that power is being exercised largely against non-citizens yeah. in that case so so that's that's you know that's the situation and, mm-hmm. and you're right it's it's really really concerning um and it needs to be dealt with. And I, and I agree with you. This needs to be deconstructed, dismantled, mm-hmm. and addressed in a new way. But that requires, and you were pointing to this, a kind of a larger vision, a vision yeah. shift. Right? And I think this is where you were going with the idea that this is a, this is a global problem, which is the world is mm-hmm. erecting barriers, enforcing borders, rather than adapting exactly. to our new realities, you know, spurred in part by climate change, where you have refugees exactly. trying to and enter th- countries to find some kind of safety in those countries, just tossing them out and shoring up their borders against the barbarian mm-hmm. hordes. Um, and this exactly. is taking on a racial quality everywhere in the world. Exactly. And, and uh, you know, I'm thinking also of, for example, the Mexican immigrants in the U.S., mm-hmm. but other, you know, in other countries as well. That, you know, they're the in the context of the U.S., but in the co- global context as well, immigration occurs also because you know violence occurs. So mm-hmm. we know war, genocide, etc. That is usually provoked by the countries that later on receive the influx of of refugees, asylum seekers, of immigrants, right? Right. And then also by economic hardships. And those yeah. economic hardships are presented or are created also by global powers, Absolutely. right? So when I'm thinking of Haiti. Mexican, yes, Haiti or the Mexican immigration, I say, right. well, you know, you might as well be, try to help Mexico be a better place instead of right. like endorsing the, the, the whole drug mafia and drug trafficking. Right. Right, yeah, uh, being precisely. the U.S. the biggest consumption, for example, mm-hmm. of drugs in the world. Mm-hmm. Right, Absolutely. so there, there's, there's a lack of address of these problems. I like also, you know, we might want to talk uh, one day about, uh, uh, you know, like um, the legalization of different drugs because yeah. drug is causing Absolutely. so much violence yeah. in particular in latin america yes. the violence of drug trafficking of you know of course illegal drug trafficking is expanding so much yeah. when the links of drug mafias are 
incredibly close to government, banks, companies, entities, etc. So all of these different issues besides, you know, like global wars or even, you know, climate change, etc. All of these issues are not being addressed. The only thing that is being addressed is keeping the refugees, the immigrants, asylum seekers out. It's just awful. Yeah, it's It's, just awful. It's awful. It's awful. It's the powerless people. You know, it's keeping the powerless people out. Giving the back to the it's unbelievable it is unbelievable it's immoral it's unethical and it's it's also impractical i mean it stands in the way of dynamism you know um you know human beings are so inventive and creative but in order to do that they need to cross borders if you think of like some of the most dynamic times in human history um you know there's been there's been border crossings right intensive border crossings and exchanges of languages and goods and cultures and ideas and we're not going to work our way out of our present dilemma in the world by Mm -hmm. by building walls exactly (laughs) around ourselves it's 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 absolutely impractical and it yeah. lacks vision, you know, and I know that President, Vice President Harris in the United States is down mm-hmm. and working in Honduras and, and, and you okay. know. Yeah, I, I read the, about that. Right, yeah. you know, but the problem is, is that the structures need to change, right? Yeah. It's so hard to build capacity in societies that have been left behind by the global economy and are being, you know, routinely violated by the global economy how do you how do you build political or economic capacity better if you're still profiting from their exploitation so exactly you know i mean this goes back to the seems what seems to be the theme of this episode of our podcast which <laughs> is which is that we need new frameworks and we need new ideas and new mm-hmm. paths forward i don't think we've come up with them yet do you know? No. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm hoping that uh, that that our that our species will come up with some better ideas in the very near future. <laughs> we need a five year yeah. plan for new ideas <laughs> and new visions for humanity. <laughs> a people centered, so people centered policy. Right. If you yes. keep people in the center, I think we should be able to come up with something better. Yeah, I hope so too. I think that's probably the only way to get out of this 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 very difficult and sort of dead end situation. Yeah. I think that's yeah, because it's a dead end. Mm-hmm. In this in this scenario as we going back to the beginning, yeah. it's a dead end. So that's... we need structural changes. Absolutely. We need. And it's... um mm-hmm. unfortunately, we don't have any other way out. We do not. We do not. Mm-hmm. And so we have to start finding the voices that are giving us a, a glimpse, right, of another yep. future, of another possibility. Um, and that's something we want to highlight in this podcast. And I, I Those are the say, people you know, we as, interview, uh, you know? Yeah, exactly. And I will say this as a joke, but also as a reality. A way of living here, not on Mars. I'm not that interested oh, in living on Mars or looking... No. I, I want to live on this planet and I want to coexist with everything that yeah. is exists in this planet. Absolutely. So, I mean, although I, I congratulate going to space <laughs> and finding out what yeah. is there because it's also good and it's improvement of, you know, the, the, the what humankind can do and, and, and humans can do. 
um, I think we need to use that intelligence in how to find the structures that that put, like you said, that put people in the center, that are people center, not just companies and governments and those profiting oh from those God, companies right. and governments. Wealth, but it's, wealth at the it's center, for the majority right? of people. For the majority of people, yeah. I mean, it's yeah. not it's not hopeful to think, oh, we've ruined Earth, we'll go to Mars. When we ruin Mars, exactly. we'll have the technology <laughs> to go to Jupiter or wherever we're going. You know, I mean, it's ridiculous. We can't we can't have a history of just ruining one planet after another. That's what we've done on our own planet. But no, that that is not that is that, that is not. not it's not inspiring. It's not inspirational exactly. at all. No. I, I, I put my vote for living on Earth. If yes. one day I think that's, choose, let's solve our problems here. I have here. my yeah. vote there. Yeah, well, Earth is beautiful. Earth is beautiful. So beautiful. Our history it's, it's... is bound up with the history of this planet. You exactly. Know? We need so... to find a solution here. Exactly. I, yeah. I don't stop anyone who wants to live in Mars, but I put my vote for living here. <laughs> well, I second that vote. All in favor say aye. Aye. <laughs> Exactly. Right. So I think this was a great podcast. Yeah, I, I, I think it. what I realize uh, is that if we stop doing it, there's so much going on in the world and we haven't even covered Afghanistan yet I that know. we can't really stop doing the podcast because there's so much to talk about every day. It's, it's a very dynamic world. Yeah. That's a good thing. We don't get bored. <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> right, we're not always for the good reasons, but... Yeah. Anyway, we did pre we did present a good news today about the Armenian claim. Yeah, so. that was good news. See, there that is, is good. some good news. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's good well, news. Well, thank you, Irena. And thanks oh, thank to you, all Lisa. of our listeners and our subscribers. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Yet again, we'll ask you if you're interested, if you like our podcast, you want to support the work that we do. There are lots of ways to be involved. Um, and one of them is to support us with a small donation on patreon.com, where you sub can subscribe to our podcast for as little as $2 a month. And that allows us to continue producing this material and building our project such that we can create more and more projects and materials in genocide prevention at the grassroots level with the aim of creating a shared language of prevention worldwide. Um, so we hope you will join us in this movement. And uh, we look forward to seeing you next week. We're now back on a weekly schedule. Um, and hopefully, let me give this news up yeah. to you, we'll have short news podcasts, right? Ah, um, yes. Now that's upcoming. Yeah. True. Irena's mm -hmm. right. We have a wonderful intern of ours named Allison Nui is going to be the host of weekly five-minute news updates um, on genocide and genocide prevention-related news. So look out for that. I think we're calling it genocide news now we're not sure yet but there will be an announcement soon yep great wonderful thank you it's Irena. exciting it is very <laughs> thank exciting you. thanks everybody be safe be well and we'll see you in a week bye 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 bye